محمدًا رسول الله ويقيدي أدنو إليه ساجدًا بجبيني اقبل صلاتي بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد so we had started talking about the battle of أحد and we had talked about the preparations for war the fact that the Quraysh were camping outside were very close outside of أحد the shura that the Prophet ﷺ did the fact that the Sahaba themselves differed and then they changed their minds and the Prophet ﷺ refused to change his mind he said once he has worn armor he will not take it off. Now, uh, one of the biggest problems of the Battle of Uhud as we describe it is that what we have is simply bits and pieces of the whole battle. We don't have somebody who's painted the whole picture for us. What we have is one Sahabi says this happened and he talks about one incident. Another Sahabi says that happened, he talks about another incident. And so we have small pieces of the puzzle and the problem comes in filling in the gaps in between and in figuring out which event is taking place before the other. So for example, let me say, suppose you were involved in a very difficult activity that lasted the entire day. You're not going to sit there and tell your descendants or your children every single detail. You're going to tell them what, what sticks in your mind. The one or two big events. Okay. Similarly, every one of the Sahaba is telling their progeny or the next generation one or two incidents here and there. So the problem comes in reconstructing the events of the battle and that is why especially the battle of Uhud because it was chaotic and also because it was a loss and losses generally you don't mention too much about them, right? Because it's human nature. Uh, and so number one, because it was chaotic. Number two, because it was a loss. If you read five different Sira books, you will get five different chronological events of the battle, right? You're not going to get a standard, uh, if you like, uh, a series of events, and this is the reason why. So, in today's and in the following two, three lectures, this is one reconstruction, and I'm warning you from now that this is original in its own way. If you go back and read other books, you might get slight variations. The incidents are the same. It's a matter of connecting the dots. It's a matter of uh, uh, inferring what happened in between. And this is something that there are always going to be theories and uh, what will be presented today in the next two, three lessons will basically be one theory of events. So, Allah Azza wa Jal knows best, we will attempt to derive what we can. What appears to be the case is that around the 13th of Shawwal, the Quraysh were approaching the city of Medina. And the 13th of Shawwal is a Thursday. The 14th is the Friday. And the battle took place on the Saturday. Okay? So, pretty much most of the early authorities agree, Ibn Ishaq is amongst them, that the actual battle took place the morning of Saturday. So now we try to reconstruct the previous three days. This is all theory. There's nothing explicit. And the theory basically is that by the 13th, the Quraysh and the Muslims are within scouting distance. They can send the scouts and figure out who's where. Okay? So, by the 14th, the Prophet decides we need to go to Uhud. Before the army settle down, before they attack Medina, we need to get to Uhud. And that is why, as soon as he did the Shura, and as soon as the Salat al-Jumu'ah is prayed, what did he do? He makes his way to Uhud. And 
According to a number of reports, he makes his way to Uhud surreptitiously, secretly, because he doesn't want to give it away to the enemy until he has gotten to Uhud before them, and therefore he has chosen the place he wants to choose. So, the fact that he is going to Uhud secretly, and we know this because he asked for a guide to take him through the alleyways, uh, not the alleyways, but the date palm groves, right? Not to take the major, let's say, highway. He's not going to take the main highway to Uhud. Rather, they went through the garden groves in the, call it the back alleyways, call it, you know, the, the lay of the land. And so the entire army is basically making its way off of the highway. Why? So we have to infer here that they didn't want to be marching on the highway because that would give their location away too early. They want to get to Uhud first so that they can choose where they want to camp. And that's exactly what happened. And so it is narrated that uh, as they were walking through the, 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 the date palms, a hypocrite uh, heard the rustling of all of these men and horses. And he was an old blind hypocrite, one of the friends of Abdullah, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul. He's one of the friends of Abdullah ibn Ubay. And he hears all of this rustling and he hears the whole commotion. So they're clearly not on the highway. They're walking through the date palms. They go through his own garden. So he says, who is this? Is this Muhammad and, and his companions? Verily, I don't allow you to step foot in my land. And he began, he's blind, he's an old man. He began throwing uh, pebbles and rocks and whatever to try to stop the Sahaba from coming in his animosity and hatred. And one of the Sahaba went to raise his sword to basically get rid of him. And the Prophet said, Leave him alone. He is a blind man of the eyes and a blind man of the heart. You don't have to kill this guy. What's he going to do by killing him? Leave him. Both his eyes and his heart are blind. And so they let him be. But again, from this, what do we derive? We derive there's a reason he's not walking on the highway. What could be the only reason? That the Quraysh are within scouting distance and they have their spies. So he doesn't want to give away the location until he gets to Uhud first and then he chooses the location and that's exactly what he did. The Prophet chose the location first. So he arrives on Uhud in the early afternoon of the 14th. And the 14th is what day again? Friday. 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 14th is Friday. He gets the early afternoon, meaning right after Salat al-Jumu'ah. Uh, Salat al he gets to Uhud because again, he wore his armor right after Jumu'ah and then he refused to take it off and he said, no, we are going to march. And they marched. And by the way, generally, they would pray Dhuhr, uh, they would pray Jumu'ah uh, according to one riwayah. Basically, they would pray it early in the afternoon, even before Salat al-Dhuhr. And the, tic, the, the issue of the, is Jumu'ah a different Salat than Dhuhr? This is a classical controversy. And the Hanbali position, which is frankly the position many mosques in America follow because it makes life a lot easier. Dhuhr is a separate Salat, not... Jumu'ah is a separate salat, not related to Dhuhr. So Jumu'ah has a separate time zone. So Jumu'ah can be prayed before Salat al-Dhuhr. And this is the Hanbali Madhab, and it is a position that is common, and we here at MIC also follow this position. And inshallah, the evidences are clear. If this is the case, we can assume that Jumu'ah was prayed basically, you can say in our time, like 11-ish, like that, early, earlier than typical. And so the Prophet could have been uh, at Uhud, he could have arrived at Uhud easily by 2 o'clock, easily. This is very easy because Uhud is half an hour walk from the Prophet Masjid. Literally half an hour walk. By car, it takes three minutes, four minutes. Direct, straight highway. 
By car, it's literally right there. It's not that far away. And maybe even less than half an hour. So the Prophet ﷺ arrives at uh, Uhud on the 14th. And the Quraysh, therefore, by their scouts, they now know the, the Muslims are at Uhud. So they make their way also to Uhud after the Prophet ﷺ. And the night falls and the two armies are both at Uhud. Therefore, at sunrise, they know there's going to be battle. And that sunrise is the 15th of Shawwal, which is the morning of the uh, Saturday. Now, uh, immediately as soon as the Prophet arrived, and we're assuming this took place on the 14th, but it might have been the morning of the 15th, we don't know. He began uh, organizing the army and looking over each and every fighter, each and every of the Sahaba, putting them in an appropriate uh, position. And what is narrated here is that he rejected around a dozen or so of the Sahaba because they were too young. So they were uh, less than the age of 15. In the Battle of Uhud, you had to be 15 or older to participate. If you were less than 15, uh, then you were rejected. And so of those who were sent back to, to, to Medina, sent back to their house is Abdullah ibn, Amr, uh, ibn Umar, Abdullah ibn Umar ibn Khattab. Ibn Umar, Zayd ibn Thabit, the famous Hafid of the Quran, the one who composed the Quran, Zayd ibn Thabit, uh, Usama ibn Zayd, Usama ibn Zayd ibn Usama ibn Zayd ibn Haritha, Hibbun Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, this is Usama ibn Zayd, Abu Sa'id al Khuduri, uh, Zayd ibn Arqam, and all of these are sent back because they are too young. Uh, and uh, subhanAllah, uh, Usama ibn Zayd, if you do the, the math, the math uh, when he was 17 in the Battle of Mu'tah, this means right now he's around 11 or 12 years old. 11 or 12, and he is trying to sneak into the army. He wasn't supposed to come, but he's trying to like, you know, sneak into the army and make sure that nobody sees him till he gets there. He's caught right before the battle and he's sent back home. Where are our 11 years old compared to uh, Usama ibn Zayd, uh, 11 years old at that time? Uh, a, number of, a number of these young men tried to argue their way to remain, and two of them succeeded. So, of them was Rafi ibn Khadij. Rafi ibn Khadij was 14. So the Prophet he's asking the ages, 14, khalas, go back, you cannot participate. Then, some of his relatives petitioned and begged because they, could, they knew how eager he was, he was completely downstruck that he's being sent back home. And so they said, Ya Rasulullah, he's an expert archer. Even if he's 14, okay, but he's an archer. So we don't expect him to be in the front line. He can use his, his uh, bow and arrow. Uh, and so because he was an archer, he was allowed to remain behind. When Rafi' was allowed to remain, Samura ibn Jundub stands up and he says, Ya Rasulullah, he's, he's also 14. He says, Ya Rasulullah, if you're going to allow Rafi', I am stronger than Rafi' and I've beat him, beaten him up in wrestling a number of times. It's not fair. If you're going to let Rafi' stay, then I should stay as well. And so, uh, and according to one book, he even like jumped on him at the time to show him that I'm stronger than uh, Rafi'. And so the Prophet allowed Samura and Rafi' to remain uh, as well. Uh, and of course, again, I mean, it, we don't need to comment here how amazing it is, uh, these young men, young, uh, you know, lads, they're full of Iman. Uh, and compare this to Abdullah ibn Ubay and the gray-haired hypocrites. Compare these to the senior of the hypocrites that, subhanAllah, they should have been at the forefront. They have participated in battle. They have experience, they have wisdom, yet 
Their cowardice, as Allah exposes in the Quran, their cowardice is where? Compare this to the bravery, the iman, the courage of these young uh, men. And of course, it is because of this that Islam spread where it spread, because the people on this side had this type of uh, iman. So as we said, uh, on the 14th, the Prophet stations the army and Ibn Ishaq says that he placed the army this is in Ibn Ishaq and we're gonna now look at the map in like 20 minutes or so to try to figure out what exactly is going on he placed the army such that Ibn Ishaq says the army was facing Medina and their backs were towards Uhud so they turned around 180 so they walk and then they turn around basically now they're facing where they came from and their backs were to Uhud and on their left, we learn from the books, was a small mountain that at the time was called Jabal Al-Aynayn. And it is now called Jabal Al-Rumah, the, the mountain of the archers. But at, at the time it was called Jabal Al-Aynayn. And so the Prophet ﷺ camped in a nestled, if you like, cove in a uh, semi-circular area that we will see inshallah in a while. And he was surrounded by three sides protected by the mountain. And there was only one open side. And this side very conveniently had Jabal al-Aynayn smack in the middle of it. So there's one side that's open. And smack in the middle is Jabal al-Aynayn. And so the Prophet ﷺ, as we all know, he stations 50 of the best archers on this mountain. And with their bow and arrow, they have this entire flank covered. And so in essence, the Prophet ﷺ has now sealed himself completely from any possible enemy attack. And all that is left is a small area of roughly 300 meters or so. That will be the offensive that the process is now going to use as the offensive. And the whole beauty here, they are outnumbered four to one. More than four to one. 700 to more than 3,000 plus, right? More than four to one. They're outnumbered four to one. 4.2 to one, let's say, right? Here, what the Prophet did, and honestly, this is military genius that's coming from up. What he does, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he makes this small number... And versus this large number, he maximizes the space such that their extra surplus quantity becomes meaningless. Because if you only have 300 meters to attack, then who cares how long the line is? It's going to be not that important. Now, no doubt, it's still beneficial to have more people. But what he's done is he's effectively made the odds much less than 1 to 4.2. Because all that they're going to be able to attack the Muslims is literally around 300 meters. 300 meters is yani, a few times this long masjid side that we have here. Double this by or triple it maybe. That's all they have. So what's the point of having 4,000 or 40,000 when you have to all squeeze in? So you have now face to face, men to men. You have now, you're not going to be surrounded. And the, the, the Quraysh would have had to thin out and attack in a similar amount of space than the Muslims. And this is, as we said, the military genius of the Prophet ﷺ. Of course, he understood, and this is an interesting point here, that uh, out of the Battle of Uhud, the most authentic reports, the ones that are reported in Bukhari and Muslim, the ones that every book of Seerah reports, is the advice that the Prophet ﷺ gave the archers. And this shows us, he understood that there's only one strategic weakness in this entire link, and that is that stretch of land that the archers are protecting. 
The other three are protected by the mountains. The 300 meters we have taken care of as an army. There's only one large stretch, and that is the stretch the archers are in charge of. And he told the archers, protect us with your arrows, for their horses will never come forth in response to arrows. Horses, when they see the arrows coming, will never be able to charge. Horses are terrified of arrows. It doesn't matter even if you push them. They're not going to go forth when they see the arrows coming. And so he said, protect us with your arrows. And in one version, and this is in Bukhari, he says, even if you see the birds eating our bodies, do not leave your places until I send for you. Even if you eat, see the birds eating our bodies, don't leave your place until I send for you. In another version, he says, make sure the enemy does not surprise us from behind, regardless of whether we are the victors or the losers. You stay there until I tell you. And again, it is interesting that out of all of the incidents of Uhud, this one has been recorded with the most authentic chains and in every single book. And again, this shows us that the Prophet fully understood the sensitivity of the situation. So much so that he's giving a very graphic image even if our corpses are lying there until the commander until I send for you it's not your job to leave this position and uh, again here we have of course the prophecies and preparing it down to the last uh, detail uh, and we already mentioned the th three people in charge of the Quraysh who were they who was the main person in charge of the Quraysh <laughs> Abu Sufyan on the right hand side was Khalid and Walid on the left hand side Ikrima ibn Abi Jahl. So these are the three major uh, contingents of the Quraysh. On the morning of the 15th, as the sun is rising on Saturday morning, 15th of Shawwal, the Prophet is wanting to encourage them for battle. And every single uh, you know, group or every single military uh, uh, you know, army, it has its ways of motivating. Even by the way, the American army, it has a special department, basically motivation. What are you supposed to do to motivate uh, the troops? So uh, every single you know, uh, society or group has its motivation. What better motivation can there be than Allah Azza wa Jal and His Messenger? And so the Prophet Sallallahu is motivating them, exhorting them. He is uh, encouraging them. And one of the things that he does is he takes out his own sword. And he says, who will take this sword from me and fight? So this is going to be a blessed sword now. The sword of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Immediately everybody is saying, I will, I will take it. Ana ya Rasulullah. And of those who was of the first to say it was the Prophet's cousin Zubayr ibn al-Awwam, the father of Abdullah, Zubayr ibn al-Awwam. So the Prophet then asked, who will take it from me with its right? Bihaqqihi. Who will give the sword the right that it is owed? Everyone paused. Abu Dujana said, and what is its haqq, Ya Rasulullah? What is the haqq of this sword, Ya Rasulullah? So the Prophet said that you fight the enemy with it until it breaks or is not serviceable anymore. That you continue to fight with this sword until you can no longer use it. And so Abu Dujana said, I will take it with that haqq, Ya Rasulullah. I will take it with this condition. And Abu Dujana was a fearsome warrior. And uh, in the days of Jahiliyyah, he had established a reputation of being a, uh, a fighting machine. And he had a special turban that was called the turban of death. And it was red in color to really show that, that uh, uh, notion. And he would only wear it 
basically at extreme times of battle. So he donned the turban, he put on the turban, and he started walking around in a uh, somewhat of a, a swaggering, if you like, uh, gate, a very uh, you know, proud gate with the sword unsheathed up and down so the Quraysh could see him. He's wearing his sword, uh, sorry, he's wearing the turban, he has the sword up and he's walking in a very proud manner. And our Prophet ﷺ said, Inna hadihi al-mishya, this type of walking, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala despises it except at such a time and such a place. This type of walking, the walking of arrogance with chest puffed outwards and showing your everything that you have and you have the sword out. SubhanAllah, may I say that this type of walking is very common in our times uh, in many places, right? Uh, and yet our Prophet said that this is a mishya, this is a walking that is yabghuduhullah, Allah despises it, except at such a time and such a place. Only now, now it makes sense, you want to scare those people on the other side. You want to show them what you're made out of. And this shows us, of course, that, uh, I and mean, this is common sense that, you know, the purpose of such a walk or the purpose of such a turban is to instill this the, the right spirit, the fighting spirit into the Sahaba. And of course, as I said, modern methods of war, they have their own techniques, they have their own, uh, you know, uh, issues and whatnot. And as for us, we have Allah Azza wa Jal and the promises of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Now, uh, of the first things that the Quraysh tried to do before the battle begins, the first thing they tried to do, they tried to separate the, the Ansar from the Muhajirun. They tried to cause a gap between them. How did they do this? Two tactics. First, Abu Sufyan sent a messenger. He sent a flag bearer, a messenger. And the messenger comes within shouting distance. And the messenger says, I have been sent by Abu Sufyan, the leader the chieftain Abu Sufyan. And Abu Sufyan is saying, O people of Medina, leave us to our cousins, for we have nothing against you. Go back safe and sound. We don't have a problem with you guys. Leave us to our cousins. Now, the Ansar were the bulk. The Muhajirun are less than a hundred something of men here. Right? You have five, six hundred of the Ansar. And there is no way that if the Ansar leave, khalas, even the 700 now, you know, they'll go down to, to nothing. And so Abu Sufyan says, leave us to our cousins and you are safe. Go back to your houses. We don't even want to fight you. We have no desire to engage with you. Just leave the uh, Quraysh and go back home. And uh, the Ansar uh, became furious at this insinuation and they responded back with a series of curses and insults. And by the way, uh, in such a situation and time, it is as well permitted to use uh, language that is otherwise not uh, befitting of a Muslim. We have a number of instances in the battlefield where some of the Sahaba use some very harsh language, perhaps even foul language in order to, and again, again, this is a time and a place exactly as the Prophet said, that that's not something that is appropriate except at certain times and places and no doubt on the battlefield, yani you're not going to be, tafaddal, you first, you know, it's not going to be like this, you know, you're not going to have yani shah, you want some shah, no, it doesn't work that way, right? You don't have these, uh, these adab on the battlefield, on the battlefield you show a harshness and a roughness that is meant for the battlefield. And so they responded back with a series of uh, insults that showed their anger at how dare you accuse us of wanting to leave the Prophet uh, So the messenger comes back basically humiliated. Then 
A man says, leave this to me. I know what to do. Who is this man? This man is Abdu Amr ibn Saifi. Abdu Amr ibn Saifi. And he, uh, his name was Abu Amir al-Rahib. Sorry, he is Kunya. Abu Amir al-Rahib. Al-Rahib means the monk. Al-Rahib means the monk. And Abu Amir al-Rahib was one of the leaders of the Aus before the immigration of the Prophet He was one of the few seniors who remained alive after the civil war. And in the days of Jahiliyyah, he was the equivalent of Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul. He was of that stature and level, and he was greatly beloved and respected. However, he did not want to accept Islam, and therefore before the Battle of Badr, he simply abandoned Medina. Because he felt what Abdullah ibn Ubay felt, and he just did not want to remain in, in Medina. So he took a group of his fellow tribesmen of the Aus, small contingent, and he went to Mecca to settle in Mecca and to wait for an opportunity such as this one so that he could come back to his people and try to regain his, uh, his chieftainhood. And so he says to Abu Sufyan, leave this to me, for my people have always respected me, and they have always honored me, and you will see now the power that I have over them. He's been boasting to Abu Sufyan. And so Abu Amir al-Rahib was his uh, kunya, Abu Amir al-Rahib, his name is Abdul Amr ibn uh, Saifi. Uh, he went out directly in front of the Ansar. And he said that, uh, Ya Aus, O oh my people of the Aus, this is me Abu Amir. Here I am back, Abu Amir. And before he could continue whatever offer he had, immediately they said, May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala curse you and give you no pleasure. You are not Abu Amr al-Rahib, you are Abu Amr al-Fasiq. Swapped his name around. From Rahib, he's degraded to Fasiq. Why? Because he fled Islam. He was such a coward, he was such a full of anger and hatred uh, towards the Prophet that he fled his people, his own people. And he went to him, everybody knows why he fled, right? So they said, you are not Abu Amr al-Rahib, don't tell us you're the monk. You're not a monk, you're a, you're a, a fasiq, you're an evil person. And uh, Abu Amr was so shocked to see his own people, the Aus, now you know, basically get so angry at him that he couldn't even open his mouth to continue. And he returned days to Abu Sufyan and he said, my people have uh, been afflicted with some disease, I don't know what has happened to them. Right? He could not recognize his own people anymore because again, yani this is what Iman does, that Iman makes your wala to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to his messenger. Doesn't matter if you are a leader in the days of Jahiliyyah, we no longer worship idols and we're not going to listen to what you have to uh, offer us. And again, uh, this, this is the reality of Iman, that Iman establishes bonds like nothing else. And once those bonds are established, then Whoever has it, alhamdulillah, whoever doesn't, then they are not on the side of Iman. By the way, Abu Amir al-Rahib, we should not call him Rahib, we should call him Abu Amir al-Fasiq, like the Sahaba did. Abu Amir al-Fasiq had a very famous son, and his son was on the other side. His son is on the side of the Muslims, and all of you know his name, and his name is Hanzala. Hanzala, Ghasil al-Malaika, Hanzala, that is his son. Hanzala is his son. So look now at the contrast between father and son. Right? Hanzala will die very shortly in the battle of Uhud. And he is on the side of the Muslims. And his father, Abu Amr al-Fasiq, is on the other side, uh, you know, wanting to persuade them to join his own, uh, his own side. Uh, so the Quraysh then, both of these uh, issues uh, basically fail. 
So the Quraysh began their uh, preparations for war, and uh, the women as well, we talked about them last uh, last uh, Wednesday, somebody said they were the cheerleaders. Well, it's exactly true, they were the cheerleaders in their own way, not the types of cheerleaders of our times, but in terms of content, the same. And that is, they are literally enticing the men with bed and with firash. That's exactly what they're saying. That go forth and win, and we will spread the firash for you. We'll spread the bed for you. Or if you become losers and come back, then you're not going to get anything from us, right? So even on the battlefield, the women have the stick, okay? <laughs> that they're going to make sure that the men are fighting it out all the way to the end. And so they began, and they have their series of songs, and Ibn Ishaq records some of them. And you get the point, this literally cheerleaders, like literally giving those songs to encourage the men to be uh, brave. And as with all battles, the first issue is always a mubaraza, one-on-one. All battles begin like this, right? And so the Mubaraza takes place in the battle of Uhud. And the Mubaraza, the one-on-one, takes place between Talha ibn Abi Talha. And Talha was uh, uh, from the tribe of the Banu Abdiddar. So Talha comes out and he says, Who will fight me? Who will do the Mubaraza? And so Ali ibn Abi Talib stands up and says, I will do it. I will fight you out. Ali. And so Ali ibn Abi Talib uh, uh, comes forth and the two of them, now Talha was wearing full body armor and Ali had no armor. Talha was wearing full body armor, complete, even the hands and the limbs are uh, covered. And Talha swung as soon as they were within fighting distance, but Ali was faster than him. And Ali immediately took the full blow of the sword, he took it onto his shield. And before he could take it off of the shield, meaning Talha, before he could take it off, immediately he struck back. So with one hand he's blocking, literally like you see in the movies, that's all I can say. We've never experienced this type of stuff. Literally like you see in the movies, like you call lightning speed. With one hand he moves it up to block, and the other hand simultaneously is striking downwards. And that honestly requires skill that we can never imagine any of us in this room. To, to be able to be that quick and see what's going on. He blocked the blow completely, didn't even touch him. Complete on the, 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 the shield. And now that he's defenseless because Talha is putting all of his might in, in, in putting it down. Now that he's defenseless, he uses the other hand and his whole body. He's wearing a suit of armor all the way down to the thighs. So what does he do? He attacks below the thigh. And again, look at how fast his mind is processing this information, right? So he attacks below the thigh, and with such force, the leg is chopped off. That is force. The leg is chopped off, and Talha just collapses to the ground. And as he collapses his... uh, uh, his garment that he was wearing, it is put upwards, and in fact, his aura is shown. Because then he falls backwards, now everything comes up, his aura is shown. Ali comes to strike him a blow. And Talha starts begging and pleading. He says, I beg you by the rights of kinship. They are third cousins. I mean, after all, they're all Quraysh, you know. This is Banu Abdiddar. Banu Abdiddar. Abdiddar is the brother of uh, Abdi Manaf. Abdi Manaf and Abdiddar are brothers, right? So he is the, what is it, the, uh, do the math, the great grandson or something. So, yeah, you get the point. Abdi Manaf and Abdiddar. So Ali is the descendant of Abdi, Abdi Manaf and he is the descendant of Abdiddar, right? So I think that's the third cousin we call it. Second, no, third cousin, third cousin. So they're third cousins, right? So he says, I beg you by the rights of kinship, don't kill me. SubhanAllah, he's on his back, his aura is showing and Ali gets embarrassed. 
Ali gets some khajal, some haya. And he, now nobody's hearing this because this is in the middle. And so he lowers the sword and walks back. And the Sahaba said, Oh Ali, why didn't you kill him? Like you're just coming back like this. And so he said, yani I felt embarrassed and he begged me by the rahim, by the ties of kinship, uh, not to kill him. And so Ali actually uh, spared him. He did not kill him. But of course in that state, he couldn't fight properly. He was killed in the battle. So he couldn't fight in the battle. I mean, his leg is cut off. You're not going to, the wound is festering. So he actually died uh, later on in the same battle, one of the few of the Quraysh that died. But Ali did not, uh, Ali did not kill him uh, and finish him off. And again, this shows us, subhanAllah, the ties of kinship, even though it's a fourth cousin or something. But nonetheless, Ali felt, or third cousin, Ali felt uh, that Hayyan, especially defenseless and literally like naked in this manner, he felt some iman and, and some, uh, what's going to, what do you call it, muru'ah, what's going to be muru'ah, like yani, uh, dignity. Like, there's a way to fight. There's a way to even kill your opponent. You kill him on his legs. You kill him with the sword out. Now that he's in this pitiful state, this is not bravery. Right? And so Ali felt, and this, wallahi, is, this is what you call a warrior. This is what you call a noble warrior. Your enemy, your cousin's on your back, he's in this state, now he's begging you. And also look at his bravery. What happened to Talha? One minute he's saying, who's gonna fight? Who's gonna fight? Two minutes later, he's on his back naked, crying and begging for my life, right? Look at the difference between this. And so Ali spares him, and then he dies a death uh, anyway. Um, now, here we have a big gap. We have hardly any details of the initial assault. We have just one or two small tidbits. And so we have to simply imagine or visualize or theorize. We don't have too many details of the initial assault. All that we know is that the Muslims charged. After Ali's victory, they charged. And the Mushrikun could not sustain this assault. Despite their four times advantage, despite their overwhelmingly a uh, powerful and well-armed army, they were not able to maintain the assault that the Muslims did on the Quraysh. And again, all that we know, we have hardly any uh, major incidents right now, all that we know uh, from a number of different people, that the, uh, uh, the women of the Quraysh were forced to flee. And the fact that the women are fleeing shows that the initial attack has been devastating. Because the women, where are they stationed? At the very end of the encampment, right? So the women are the very last tense. And the very fact that the women are forced to flee shows that the Muslims, and this is exactly what the Prophet had intended, that the concentration is now in their advantage. That this small gap, as we'll see in a while, the small area of land, 300 meters, now the Muslims have the advantage and they're charging and they make their way all the way to the end. Because the Quraysh have, and again we're assuming, thinned out. And that's what the process wants. The Quraysh are now not too much thickened up. You see the point in terms of Sufuf. And the Muslims have plenty of Sufuf. So they're concentrated. It's like a powerful bullet if you like going through a weak layer of the Quraysh, right? So they make their way through and they start spreading out. And the women are forced to flee. Now we also know another thing that shows us how devastating the initial assault was. One interesting thing that we know, again the, the, the initial assault, uh, uh, from the initial assault, was that the flag of the Quraysh was given to the sub-tribe of the Banu Abdiddar, which Talha was from. Talha was from the same 
Abu Abdullah. And it was the custom of the Quraysh that the Banu Abdullah is the one that holds the flag. They would always give the flag to the Banu Abdullah. You know the Quraysh, they have, you know, you have the, the water, you have this, you have that, so I have divided it up. So the Banu Abdullah had the honor of always carrying the flag. Now, and this is from the days of, you know, pre-Islam Jahiliyyah. Now, in the battle of Badr, they also had the flag. But when the army fled, the flag bearer was one of the first to run away. Their own Banu Abdullah. So before the battle, Abu Sufyan went up to them and he's taunting them because that's his psychology, to taunt them, to make them angry so that they fight more. So he taunts them and he says, Ya Bani Abdiddar, we gave you the flag at Badr, but you turned your backs and fled and you saw what happened as a result. He blames the entire Badr on this one flag guy, right? You saw what happened because you were cowards. And the flag is the symbol of the army. If it stands, the army stands. If it falls, the army falls. So now, either take the flag with the right that it deserves, or if you can't, then give it back to us. This is reverse psychology at the highest level. Right? Either be men and keep the flag, or just give up now and hand it up to us and we'll give it to somebody else. What do you think they're going to say? Obviously, they made a pact and a promise and they were extremely insulted and uh, they challenged Abu Sufyan that you will see what we will do with this flag and they said as long as one of us remains the flag will forever be high up and that is exactly what happened as long as one of them remained the flag was up but one by one all ten of them were killed the first of them being Talha because he was the flag bearer Talha, the one that Ali cut his, his, his uh, foot off, right? The first of them was Talha, and one by one, and most of these were killed by Hamza, by the way, because again, Hamza is targeting. See, one of the problems of carrying the flag is, you literally become the target, right? When you're carrying the flag, you, everybody, the symbolic target. Another problem is when you carry the flag, you have one hand, you know, already taken, right? So it's awkward to fight with one with one hand. So the flag bearer has a great honor, a great responsibility, but he also has a great uh, weakness, right? Handicap. He has a big handicap when he's holding one of the, you know, uh, the, the, one of that. So what happens is, there's 10 of these, of the Banu Abdiddar, one by one, all of them are killed, and the flag falls. And this really shows us how effective the initial assault was unbelievably effective, right? For 10 of the Banu Abdiddar, now of course we have to say they are targeted more because they're flag bearers, but still, 10 is not a trivial number. Uh, uh, one by one they're all uh, killed and most of them at the hands of Hamza, some of them at the hands of Ali ibn Abi Talib, some of them at the hands of Abu Dujana. These three basically were the three main uh, warriors that basically got rid of the entire Banu Abdiddar until finally the flag also falls to the ground. And with the flag falling to the ground, this is the symbolic end of the army. That once the flag is not picked up, khalas, the army is deemed to have lost. And this is one of the chaoses that happen. That when the flag falls, the assumption is made by the Muslims that khalas, it's all over, right? And this was one of the things we'll talk about next week about this issue. Now, one other issue that we have, again, we're still talking about the initial uh, impact, uh, Abu Dujana. The same Abu Dujana who's wearing the turban of death. 
Abu Dujana, he fought a fierce fighting. And Zubayr ibn al-Awwam narrates the hadith about this. Zubayr ibn al-Awwam, uh, many years later, he says that when the Prophet ﷺ offered his sword, and I said, I want it, and he didn't give it to me, I felt something in my heart. After all, he's my cousin, and who is this man? The Prophet is my cousin. And who is this man, Abu Dujana? That, uh, you know, uh, 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 Zubayr is the son of? How is, he, how is he the cousin? Everybody should know. Khala. Khala. No, sister in law. Khadija. Zubayr ibn al Awam is the son of. Safiya. Safiya. Binti Abdul Muttalib. Abdullah ibn Zubayr is the son of Safiya. He is married to Safiya. Zubayr ibn Awam. You're right, actually. Yes. You're right. My mistake. You're right. Abdullah ibn Zubayr is the son of Safiya. You're right. And, and Zubayr ibn al Awam is a cousin from the Khalid side. The cousin from the Khalid side. And Abdullah ibn Zubayr is a double cousin, one generation removed. Abdullah ibn Zubayr is a double cousin because both the mother and the father are related to the Prophet. So Aisha's sister is Asma' bint Abi Bakr. So Zubayr ibn al-Awwam is a cousin through the Khala. Khala, right? Yes, you are correct in this one. So he says... Always the first time. There's always a first time? La, la, astaghfirullah. No, the brother always helps out, mashallah, alhamdulillah. And he asks probing questions, so it's good. Makes It's good to ask deep questions, alhamdulillah. Uh, so he says, I felt something in my heart. Because how could he give it to a stranger and not his own cousin? Then he said, I decided to follow him. Like after all, there must be a wisdom. Why did Allah and why did the messenger choose him over me? And so he says, and he's narrating, Abu Dujana did not meet a single person except that he managed to get rid of him with that sword. Every person he crossed except that that sword was used bihaqqihi. Right? And he says there was one person of the Quraysh that was causing much havoc amongst the Muslims. So I made a dua to Allah. Oh Allah, let Abu Dujana meet him. Now all of a sudden he becomes a fan of Abu Dujana. When he sees what Abu Dujana is doing, instantaneously he's converted. So he's saying, Oh Allah, make Abu Dujana get rid of him. And Abu Dujana indeed got rid of him. He, uh, they, they met, they stood face to face, and uh, the, the Qurashi gave the first blow. Abu Dujana simply brushed it off, and with his sword immediately struck him and got rid of him. Abu Ibn Ishaq also mentions another story about Abu Dujana, and that is that uh, Abu Dujana himself narrates uh, that I saw somebody encouraging the Quraysh with every single encouragement imaginable. And so I said, I'm going to get rid of this person. So I walked up, and I raise my sword, all of a sudden, she turns around and walwalat. Walwalat is the Arab lady cry of, uh, you know, just like the way that the Arab ladies cry, right? And it turns out it is Hind. So Hind is now basically, she has her, you know, uh, scarf or whatever, she has a cloak on. So from the back, he doesn't know if it's a man or a woman, he thinks it's a man. 
So he comes and he raises the sword. He's about to strike and she's hind. And she turns around and she screams the wail, the walwala. Somebody wants to do that or you want to embarrass yourself doing that? So you all know. I don't, you, you know if you don't know, then just Google walwala. So uh, the, 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 the way that the Arab ladies do it. So she lets out that scream. And so he says, Istahyaytu. I felt embarrassed to use the sword of the Prophet upon a woman. Subhanallah. I felt embarrassed to dishonor the sword. Ikraman. To show honor to the sword that the sword should not be killing a woman. And so I withdrew and I, and I let her be. And again, this shows us again, real fighting. This is what the real warriorship is about. That even you spare people, uh, uh, those who don't deserve to be killed in that manner. So he, he left uh, killing Hind bint Abi uh, Sufyan. And of course, we also know that of those who participated with great valor is uh, Hamza uh, ibn Abdul Muttalib, Hamza, the uncle of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. He was of those who did not participate in Badr for a legitimate reason. He did not realize what's going to happen at Badr. He stayed behind. And so in the battle of Uhud, he was extremely eager to make sure that he shows yani, who he is. And uh, if you look at Ibn Ishaq and you see uh, the, at the end of the chapter of Uhud, he has a long list of who kills whom. And if you go through this list, Hamza is one of the warriors who has killed the most number of the Quraysh. Hamza was one of those along with Ali and Abu Dujana. These three were the big names of those who inflicted the most damage. Hamza was the one who uh, has killed a, a great number of people. And uh, sadly, he also, as you know, is about to die. Uh, and uh, he becomes the, the Sayyid, the Shuhada and Uhud. We'll talk about that next uh, next uh, week, inshaAllah ta'ala. Uh, but the point being, and we'll conclude with this one narration, and that is, uh, and so we'll conclude with the initial winning of the Muslims. Next week, we'll talk about the change of tide and we'll introduce it now via the maps. Uh, we'll conclude with that narration of Bukhari. Uh, Sahih Bukhari mentions that Al-Bara ibn Azib says that when we fought them at Uhud, they turned and fled until I saw with my own eyes the legs of the women as they lifted their skirts up, running up the mountains and I could see their khilkhal, their ankle bracelets. So the fact that the Muslims got all the way to the end of the army. And the women are so defenseless that they are running helter-skelter. They don't even have their own husbands and men to protect them. And they're running up to flee the uh, uh, encampment. And in Ibn Hisham, he adds, I remember clearly seeing Hind. I remember seeing Hind. That lady Hind. You, will, you know what she did, we'll talk about her next week, right? That lady Hind, I remember seeing Hind and her female companions all running away up the mountain. And as I said, that's all, but this is all we have by the way of the initial assault. Literally what I said today, these four or five narrations, that's it, khalas. All of the other narrations deal with the counter, deal with what happened afterwards, right? And from this, and especially from this one narration, we can see how devastating was the initial impact that the Muslims broke through their ranks, made their way all to the very end, and now the women are forced to flee helter-skelter, and that clearly shows that uh, the um, Muslims had the upper hand, but of course this was what led to the chaos, and if we can now switch slides, where is Hassanain, if you can add your password and uh, switch uh, slides, we can do a little bit of the maps, inshallah ta'ala, and then break for Salat al-Isha. Thank you.
Are we on? Thirty seconds again. Uh oh, Bismillah, technical difficulties. We need to like experience an authentic, you know, it's like keep it consistent, you know, always, mashallah, tabarakallah. Is it? No, that's definitely not. That is definitely not what's supposed to be. There's something wrong with what? Okay, so what? <laughs> you were right there. Try it again. Okay, so this is uh, Google Maps. We see over here Medina. Here is Medina. And of course, uh, I wanted to show very quickly Mecca and Medina due north. Due north. And here is, of course, Jordan underneath is uh, Yemen. So, Rihlat al-Shita'i wal-Saif takes place over here. Uh, the Battle of Badr, Badr is right close to Yambur. You see the cursor there, right? Badr is right over there next to Yambur. Okay, and that is, it shows us the Quraysh, when they go to, and we're, I'm just showing you the map, uh, even the Battle of Badr, because we haven't seen the map in this case yet. When the Quraysh are going to uh, Syria, they have to go right through this area, to get to Syria. And therefore, the Prophet intercepted them or attempted to intercept them in this manner. And this was what led to the great battle of Badr. And the next year, they attempted to take the caravan from this way all the way through, uh, basically almost to Buraida and then back to Taima and Tabuk. But Jibreel had told him and so they were intercepted once again, if you remember. And this is really what caused the battle of Uhud, that both of these passages are blocked. There's no way they can get to Syria. And therefore, the only alternative is to fight. And that is exactly what they did. And therefore, let us now uh, zoom in to Medina. Here is, of course, the Battle of Khaybar. We'll talk about that in a few months, inshallah. Now we get to the beautiful city of Medina. Now, this is uh, the city of Medina. This is the, uh, let's go a little bit closer. Yeah, we'll do that in a while. Uh, so this is the city of Medina. I just wanted to, to show you uh, what is called the Harra and what is called the, uh, the two mountains. So the, this, all of this is Uhud. This white spot right there, this white spot is the Haram. This white spot is the Haram, this entire spot. I wanted to show you, the Prophet ﷺ said, Al-Madina to Haramun uh, between the mountains of Ayr and Thor, Medina is Haram. And the Prophet said, Medina to Haram, between the two mountainous rocks. So, Ayr and Thor, uh, one of these mountains, I don't think it's marked here, and I won't be able to tell you off the top of my head. One of these mountains over here, uh, this is Ayr, and Thor is on this side over here behind Uhud. All of this is Uhud. So, this entire area, this side around, is Haram. And then the Prophet said between the two Labbatayha, 
in uh, Google Earth, you cannot see Lab Bateha. You cannot see it anymore because people have built houses. But the Lab Bateha are basically these two areas, east and west. So the Prophet ﷺ clearly demarcated the uh, city of Medina. Now, we zoom in. By the way, you see this white area, right? In Musnad Imam Ahmad, our Prophet ﷺ said 1,430 years ago, he said, when Dajjal comes to Medina, he will stand on the mountaintop and he will look inside the city and he will tell his followers, do you see that white house over there? That house is the house of Ahmad. That masjid is the masjid of Ahmad. And he called it white, right? And wallahi, when you are flying into the city, forget flying, this is Google Earth, right? What do you see? That massive white structure, right? That massive white structure. This hadith is Muslim Ahmed. That you see that Al Bayt Al Abiyad over there, the white house over there, that is Masjidu Ahmed. That is the masjid of the Prophet, Masjidu Ahmed. And this is clearly uh, the masjid here that is being described. So this is the entire masjid of the Prophet. Uh, and this is Baqi Al Gharqad over here. This is Baqi Al Gharqad. All of this is the, the Baqiyah area. As we said, this entire structure basically represents the old city of the Prophet wasallam. The, the downtown, if you like, this entire structure is covered within it. And so Baqiyah was outside the city. And of course, in our days, this is in fact just the center of the city. Now move a little bit uh, outwards. And uh, here is Quba over here. This is Quba, right? This is Quba over here. And Quba, obviously, when you're coming up from, from Mecca, you have to go through Quba to get to Medina. So when the Prophet did the Hijrah, he waits at this small place of Quba, waiting for Ali to come, then he wakes his way to Medina. So this is Masjid Quba over here. Tayyib. Now where is Uhud? We said Uhud is the exact north. So over here is Uhud. And look, Uhud is a massive mountain. All of this is Uhud. This entire mountain is Uhud. Uhud, the, the mountain, is pretty much the size of the entire city in our times, right? As we said, it is not just one mountain, it is a whole range of mountains. So this is, all of this is the mountain of Uhud. Now, we come closer here, and uh, again, look at where the Haram is. This is the Haram, right? Look at the size, one kilometer. So roughly, this is roughly one kilometer, two kilometers, roughly less than three kilometers away. How long does it take to walk three kilometers, right? Roughly less than three kilometers. As I said, by car, it's literally three minutes. Uh, you will get there. No traffic, three minutes you will be in the mountain of Uhud. Of course, in our times, the city has grown so much that the entire city reaches the mountain of Uhud. Back in the day of the Prophet wasallam, all of this was, uh, usually it was plantations, it was uh, date palms. So here we have, the mountain of Uhud. Now, where did the Prophet ﷺ camp? Look over here, the very strategic place that the Prophet ﷺ uh, camped in. This area over here, where you see these houses, this area is where the Muslim army encamped. Notice how perfect it is. On each side, there are mountains. On each side, they are protected by the mountains. And this is where the battle actually took place. The camp is over here. And Jabal Al-Aynayn is right over here. This is where the Jabal Aynayn is. Okay, so let's see if I can zoom in one bit more. Okay, perfect, yeah. 
Okay, this is Jabal Aynayn. I'm going to make it center now. This is, you see this little bit of mountain here? You see that mountain? You know where to turn the lights a little bit off, by the way? Maybe that would be good. Yeah. Make it a little bit brighter. Last one. There we go. Okay, I think that's better, right? So, let me see one more if we can go in. Oh, very good. Okay. This is Jabal Al Aynayn. Now, when, when we go there in our days, this is not that high. It's probably 150 feet. We need to understand that at the time of the process, it was probably close to six, 700 feet. Why? Because every time one of you walks up the mountain, you take a little bit of it back all the way to Memphis, Tennessee. Okay? So, from the time of the process up until our time, we can estimate the mountain has been diminished at least fivefold. At least fivefold. So, what we see now, we can... Uh, you know, extrapolate that to like five, six hundred feet. Now, this is the Jabal Al Aynayn. Okay, that now it's now called Jabal Al Ruma. Now, let us go back to see Uhud. This is the camp of the Prophet sallallahu So, as we said, it is protected by three ways, completely protected. And this small area, look at the size. This is uh, two hundred meters. Is this much? Okay, this much is 200 meters, so literally 300 meters, as I said, yes, 300 meters. From this tip of the mountain to Jabal Al Aynayn is around 350 maybe, max 350. Not more than 350, maybe even 300. So this area is where the assault took place. And as I said, the genius of the Prophet was to concentrate those 700 people into that small area. Now, where is the vulnerability? This land right over here. This is the weak spot. This is that one area that is completely unprotected. Why? Because you want to concentrate over here. The Quraysh, by the way, they are camped over here. This is where the Quraysh are camped. So. The Muslims are going to launch an offensive and they work their way here and the Quraysh are fleeing, you know, helter and skelter on this side. So what happens is, and as I said, this is the interpretation of my Shaykh, Shaykh Safir Rahman Baghfuri. Other scholars have interpreted it differently. Uh, hold on, you want to, let's get to the other one. Where is the other one? Here we go, okay. Oh, mashallah. This is Google Earth, right? So let's quickly go closer. I think this has better images. MashaAllah, Tabarakallah. This is technology for you. CNN. This is CNN technology for you, huh? No, this is M-I-N-N, this is. Okay, here we get back to Medina. Okay, here we get back to Medina. Here, this is, seems to be a little bit better. Okay. Yeah, this is, okay, this is much more clear actually. Whoa, stop there. Okay, so here we have Jabal al Aynain. This is Jabal al Aynain right over here. This is Jabal al Aynain. okay? We find over here Mount Uhud. Uh, this is the uh, say the Shuhada. This is where Hamza is buried. This is where Hamza is buried. The actual battle took place a little bit away from here. He was moved away. Hamza was probably buried in this area, and then because of the uh, the, the the rainwater that exposed his grave, he was moved a little bit back. Uh, so the battle of Uhud is taking place in this area, between this tip of the mountain and uh, Jabal Al Aynain. Now, according to Majority of medieval historians, look at what happened. This is one opinion which my Sheikh strongly disagrees with. According to many medieval historians, they say, when the Quraysh fled, I have to zoom out to show you, when the Quraysh fled, Khalid ibn al-Walid saw what's happening, so he went, look where did he go? All the way behind the mountain and made his way back over here. What's the problem with that opinion? 
Way too long. And frankly, as my Sheikh said, Sheikh Sakurma said, whoever says this has never visited Uhud. Like whoever says this has not seen Uhud, they're simply reading about it, and then they say they went from behind the mountain. If you were to go behind the mountain, we're talking about minimum five, six hours. Minimum. To, to go all the way with horses and whatnot, and that's always, it's gonna be too late. You're not gonna, that's not the point here. So, clearly, and I, I cannot help but say that opinion does not make any sense. To say that Khalid went behind the mountain all the way. Look, I wanna give you a contrast. How big is the city and how big is Uhud, right? Look, all of this is Uhud, all of this is a city. The modern city, by the way. Look at the difference, right? Of course, the classic city is literally just that one thing. Look at how massive Uhud is. To say this does not make uh, much logistical sense. So, what is the other interpretation? So, um, and as I said, I'm very honored and humble. Wallahi, I can't help but feel very honored and humble. Sheikh Safi Rahman gave us a private tour of this. Yani, me and my colleague or my friend, uh, Kuwaiti friend that I had, we, we, he showed us in his own opinion. He literally went into a, a trench over here. I don't think we can see it on Google Earth. But he said, in his opinion, this is the interpretation. So what is his interpretation? He said, now, this is Jabal al-Aynayn. Do you see Jabal al I don't know if you can see it. Can you see it? This is Jabal al-Aynayn. Now, he said that when the Muslims went forward, and the, what happened was, the army thinned out. Because you have, the Muslims had a long column, right? So the army is spread out. And each group of 5, 10, 20 is now busy either killing off whoever is remaining or, sadly, collecting the war booty, right? And so they're all busy doing that. So, as we all know the story, 40 of the archers basically left the field. Now, according to Sheikh Safi Rahman, Khalid ibn al-Walid was on the right-hand side. We know this from Kutub al-Sirah, right? Now, let's do a... Where is the right-hand side? It's on this side, right? It's on the left side of the Prophet the Quraysh right-hand side, right? So, Khalid bin Walid is already on the side of Jabal al-Aynayn. So he sees what's going on. That was his advantage. Ikrima could not have seen what's going on. Abu Sufyan could not have seen what's going on. Khalid, Allah had willed it, he was that genius that was at the right time and the right place. So when Khalid turns his back to flee, because he did flee, he is not fleeing like a coward, he's fleeing like a general. He's looking back, seeing what's happening. And you can see on the top of the mountain, the 50 people. And now he sees the 40 of them have fled. So what does he do? Again, I'm jumping the gun, but you all know. He raises another flag of his local group. He calls as many people as they can. Now, let's get back to the Jabal al-Aynayn. You cannot see this on Google Earth, but when... And frankly, I don't even know if they still have this because they've done a lot of construction. But there is a ditch uh, that is rainwater ditch like not a ditch what do you call it the cavern I mean uh, not a drain bayou I mean in the desert a bayou doesn't make sense but you know you get the point when it rains there's this you know uh, uh, waterway that fills up right and you cannot see this on on Google Earth it's uh, yeah, yeah, a ravine is good, yes. Ravine is a good word, yes. So there is this ravine over here. According to Sheikh Safi Rahman, Khalid ibn al-Walid ducked inside the ravine with his entourage, with as many people as, as he had with him, so that he could remain hidden from 
Let's see if you can. No, you cannot see this, I think. Uh, but it's basically in this area. It's, it goes down. It's a ravine. And it's a waterway for the, for the rainwater. And he ducked until he was as close as possible. And then he surprised even the ten archers. Then ten archers were not able to uh, spot Khalid. So they came up and they got rid of the ten archers. And then he sent... Uh, an envoy or a, a, a messenger to gather as many troops as possible and then they launched a counter offensive from this area meaning straight from the front not all the way behind the mountain they went in straight from the front and they attacked double sides firstly the encampment that the Prophet himself was in and secondly behind the Muslims who were collecting the war booty Right? So if you look at it, when you come in from this area, where are the Muslims? They have been spread thin in this entire area. All of this area, the 700 of them would be in small pockets because they think the war is over. And this would have taken around 45 minutes. Perfect amount of timing for the Muslims to feel confident that the war is over, the Quraysh have fled, now they've, some of them have even put their swords down, they're collecting the booty, and they have you know, uh, all of the armor and the, the tents and whatnot, and they're all complete chaos, because, and this is the whole point, when Allah says, you saw what you loved, you forgot about the Prophet Now, so the Prophet is camped right over here, in this enclave and he only has a small group of sahaba because the rest of them are fighting and there is no danger of at the time of the Quraysh attacking here so he literally had perhaps only two or three of the sahaba with him that's all that was there because they're all fighting the war is deemed to be over and all of a sudden Khalid launches a counter-offensive. How many people? We have no idea. But we can estimate, reading all of the sources, at least 150 people were there. Out of 4,000, Khalid manages to gather together at least 150, and he sends them in different directions as well. Some of them right into the camp of the Muslims. Now realize, they don't know who's where. They see the camps, they see the Muslims, so they as well are trying to surprise attack them. And so even they split up into smaller groups, trying to maximize the damage. And this is where uh, the Prophet himself has to turn his back and flee with only uh, one or two of the, uh, 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 of the Sahaba with him. And uh, there is a picture, if I'm not mistaken. This is the area where he uh, fled. Let me see if I can find it. There's a picture somebody has posted here uh, of the actual cave that the Prophet uh, fled to. This is it, right here. This. So this little crevice, we're going to talk about that next, next Thursday, next Wednesday, inshallah. Right? This is, just remember this, we're not going to have the, the slide next Thursday, Wednesday, unless you want to, I don't know. But uh, this little crevice over here, this is where the Prophet ﷺ fled to. And this is where, and again, he is literally at this stage, he literally had, in the beginning, he only had one person with him. In the beginning, only one Sahabi, and then slowly but surely, now imagine from far away, from far away, you don't know who's in here, maybe nobody's in here, and that's the point that Allah Azza wa protected him in this small cave, uh, uh, sitting in a crevice with one or two of the Sahaba, and this was one of the most critical times in the life of the Prophet where he was unarmed, he was almost defenseless with one or two of the Sahaba. Had Khalid ibn al-Walid come with even three people, four people, khalas. Yani of course Allah would have protected him, but I'm saying this was one of the most critical times of the seerah where uh, uh, 
the Prophet himself, when Aisha says, what was the worst day that ever happened to you? Was it the day of Uhud? Because in her mind, there could be no day worse than Uhud. Was it the day of Uhud? And he said, no, it was the day of Ta'if. That was because for the Prophet it's not a matter of danger, but humiliation obviously hurts more for the true man than physical danger. So the physical danger was not the issue here. But in terms of physical danger, there is no question. This is the most critical time in the entire seerah. Where you can imagine, look where, where is this mountain situated? It is situated um, up here. Up, let me come in a little bit closer. So the, this is where the camp of the, Muslim, of the Muslims was, right? You get the point? So let us come a little bit closer. And look, he is running upwards into a small crevice over there. This is where he is running. And the Quraysh are trying to find him. And in the meantime, the rumor spreads that we have killed him, as we're going to talk about, right? They kill Mus'ab ibn Umayr. Mus'ab ibn Umayr, outwardly, he resembles the Prophet ﷺ. Physical features are roughly the same. And it is said that he was wearing the cloak of the Prophet ﷺ. And so when he's on his face, they see the cloak. So the new rumor spreads. And this is where the chaos completely uh, reached a maximum. Many of the Muslims thought that he had ﷺ passed away. The Quraysh are exulting that they've killed him. So any group of the Quraysh, when they hear this, of course, this was Allah's plan. Because when they heard the Prophet ﷺ is dead, they didn't have any, they didn't feel the need to re-energize and regroup. Now that they've killed him, so they themselves are happy and going back. The victory has been done. This too was a plot used by Allah to uh, send the Quraysh back. Nonetheless, we will talk about this inshallah next Wednesday. But for now, I think it is very clear the uh, beauty the strategic genius of the Prophet to choose, look at what, how perfect this area is, and he fully understood the one missing link, the one weakness, and that weakness was protected by Jabal al-Aynayn. The archers could easily have protected this area, but uh, they disobeyed, and it was because of this, and look again here, it was because of this area over here that the Quraysh managed to inflict the damage that they did, and inshallah, we will continue this next Wednesday. Are there any questions uh, about today's lesson? Was it a was it what? Well, of course, that's everything happens with Qadr. Everything. And we'll talk about some of the wisdoms. Why? Next Wednesday, inshallah. We will talk about this. Allah forgave them. Allah forgave them. Allah explicitly says in the Quran that He forgave them. Other questions? Yes. I don't know where. The Qabr of Hamza. Right? So you'll find the Qabr of Hamza. And if you face the Qabr of Hamza, Towards your back on your right hand side, you will find the Jabal al-Aynayn. Okay? It's, it's, yeah, it's right there. So if you climb that small little hill, if you climbed any hill and everybody else was climbing it, that's Jabal al-Aynayn. Okay? What I'm trying to impress upon you all is that that little hill must have been much, much higher. Because it is visited by millions of people every year. And millions of people will erode it 
day by day, not even year by year, you know, day by day. Frankly, I mean, and Allah has blessed me to be in, in Saudi Arabia many times. I remember as a child back in the early 80s, right, compared to now, it's been, mashallah, 30 years. And maybe I'm imagining, but wallahi, I feel that I can tell the difference when, you know, from 30 years from where it was to, to what it is now. Because now you don't even feel any effort. You literally is just, I mean, it's like a, you can take a toddler. You can take a toddler up. It's that easy. It's right there. I mean, so, Allahu Alam. But you can imagine with the increased quantity of hujjaj, you know, it's, uh, in my humble opinion, I think it would make sense to block it and just see it. But in any case, anyhow, much. Of course, yeah. That's, uh, but in any case, I mean, what can, you know, what can we do, inshallah? There's some benefit in even going up there and seeing. What else? Yes. Is that considered a holy site? No, there's no holy site in Islam other than the three, other than the three, right? لا تشد الرحال إلا Masajid al-Thalath, right? There's only three holy sites. Any other site we go to, we go to for historic reasons, right? We go to to increase our iman to see what happened. There is no holy site in Islam that we think there's blessings coming from that site other than Makkah, Medina, and Jerusalem, the actual Masajid of Makkah, Medina, and Jerusalem. Otherwise, there is no site that is inherently holy in Islam. Whether the um, angels were sent down to assist the Muslims, and is there any account of that happening at all? No, there isn't, and we'll explain the wisdom. We'll explain the wisdom that will contrast. One of the lessons will be a contrast between Badr and Uhud. And what Allah said about Badr and what Allah said about Uhud. In Badr, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that you are about to disagree, but Allah brought you together. And in Uhud said, Tanaza'tum wa fashaltum. You disagreed and you fought and you disunited. The exact same words are used, but in Badr, you were united after that. Whereas in Uhud, there was always disagreement from the day one about what to do with the hypocrites, about where to fight, about this and that. And subhanAllah, disunity was one of the causes of the downfall as well. Final question before we break for Salah, yes. You mentioned about Hamza that uh, he was very enthusiastic in Uhud because he didn't take part in Badr. What did he, uh, in the one-to-one fight in Badr, in the first one which uh, happened? <coughs> the was it? I'll have to check. Then I made a mistake then. I will check. I will check. Yes, yes. You are right. You are right. I will check, but uh, because in one book I just read today, it mentioned that's so the reason he was enthusiastic. But then you are right. It does not make sense. I will check this, inshallah, and get back to you next uh, next Wednesday, inshallah. Any announcements?